everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Caw, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your co-host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my quartet, the man who's going to keep us on track tonight and not let me lollygag and conspiratorial theory my way into a three-hour episode, DJ! Woo! That's that's a lot of a lot of weight on my shoulders. I don't know if I'm ready to carry that around. I'm sorry. These are the moments, right? Like, are you a true podcast gunslinger, a podslinger? Like, a podslinger? <laughs> <laughs> can you step up to the plate of keeping me on track? Uh, that feels like a slightly <laughs> evolved monkey who's just throwing something different, right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was picturing something like kind of cool, and you went straight to throwing poop. <laughs> <laughs> oh dj how have you been what have you been up to what's going on oh so uh you know we were talking before the show but um i have been building a nice very beautiful looking suitcase trap set oh my god it looks so awesome and so over the course of the last like probably month and a half i've been gathering the parts and was just waiting on one last thing and i just installed it and it looks freaking awesome um i packed everything up and it in fact fits in a suitcase I am cheating though. Uh, one snare drum. I chose to go with the like slightly fancier snare drum, mm, and the cheater. fancier snare drum does not actually fit in the pack. <gasps> so scandalous. So I'll have to have a backpack with the uh, with the one snare, but that's fine. I, I, all... Now I'm picturing you like putting out all your drums and then like carefully looking both ways, make sure yeah, no one's looking, and then pulling out the illicit snare. Yeah, hide the backpack <laughs> inside of the suitcase so you can't see it, and then be like, yeah, no, this all was all, it was all in there. Trust me. You're going to have to have, like, smoke bombs you can throw down. <laughs> when, when, it, the, when the smoke clears, the snare is suddenly appear. Don't judge me. The <laughs> snare was in there, I swear. <laughs> Prove it wasn't! Yeah, so that's what I've been up to. What about you? Uh, I've been, well, let's see, what have I been doing? Last night, I did a little um guest spot on trick-or-treat radio which was a lot of fun they do like a live show which is always a lot of pressure but they're really great guys and uh we laughed a lot and we talked about the new Guillermo del Toro film Nightmare Alley which if you have not seen it is beautiful mm-hmm. grim Ooh, is it dark but uh yeah so that I did that last night we talked for it was about it was like a three-hour show but we laughed a lot and if people haven't already checked out Trick or Treat Radio, they definitely should. Those guys are hilarious. And their next week is their 500th episode, which is wild. Like, I'm over here patting myself on the back because we're on episode 75. They're on episode 500. I know for you, DJ, as a splattercaster, former splattercaster, that's NBD, but like, that's that's a milestone. So, but yeah. it was fun. Yeah, it was fun to kind of like pre celebrate with them um, their big day. What else have I been doing? Um, I was really sick, but nobody wants to hear those gory details. <laughs> I already made DJ listen to them. That's how you know you're my friend. You sit through all my gory barfing stories. I mean, I'm actually like, I'm not an anti-barfer. So when you're telling yeah. me the story, I'm just like, tell me more. Oh, there's more. Maybe on the bonus episode, I'll get into the truly <laughs> gory details. <laughs> there's a little tease for you, patrons. Actually, this is actually a good chance to like tease that. Um 
like organically unplanned and probably should have been planned, but I'm, I guess not that good at podcasting. We have our <laughs> bonus episode coming out. We're recording next weekend. Is that right? Uh, question mark, exclamation point. Yeah, it's the 26th. Yeah, that's next weekend. Okay. And it's going to be you, myself, Ariel, and Matilda are going to be reviewing Stephen King's magnum opus maximum overdrive you know i didn't realize uh that stephen king actually directed that oh yeah i think it's the only thing he ever directed yeah and uh so matt posted an article in the uh dead lantern chat that just happened to coincide with that and i was like funny and then you're reading through it and you're like oh yeah and he never likes his adaptations but then the one he does is like wacky and kind of goofy as opposed to like <laughs> super serious and scary and he's like a horror director or a horror guy so like I, yeah but I, I already watched it and i'll probably watch it again but it's like kind of fun that they uh also do like a lot of blood and guts yeah. like it's super gory for from what i like i only ever watched it on um up all night oh so you were like hey i don't remember that yeah so i'd never seen the not for tv version of it and it's like bam 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 and you're like wow this is a lot got a lot of gore in it for you know a yeah 80s 70s movie yeah i'm excited to talk about it but yeah so that's for patrons only i think we're gonna do it uh on camera so if you want to watch us talk about this and as well as just listen to us talk about it join our patreon um like i said it'll be on the 26th so yeah come join us it's gonna be a lot of fun it's our first sort of bonus episode of the year Uh, and there will be a lot more so definitely come join the party all right so let's talk about our plan for tonight we're going to kick off the show with an in-depth conversation about Wolves of the Call-Up Part 1, Todash Chapter 7, Todash, Sections 1 through 8. Normally, we'd close out the show with a listener questioner, but oops. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I was very sick <laughs> over the weekend, so I totally spaced it. But I do have a question that I will be asking at the end of this one for the next episode. Uh, all right. So before we get into all that though dj can you please let our listeners new and old know what our spoiler policy is here like an important sign materializing in front of us where we're going to read it out loud and finally tell you the answers that you've been seeking we will not tell you that answer and instead tell you that we are going to (laughs) cross into the spoiler zone (laughs) hey 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 all right where did we last leave off with our content Uh, so the gang had just uh finished having the discussion with the town uh folks and basically showing off the fact that they can in fact shoot plates out of the air and catch those plates in their hands Mm -hmm. uh they ate a great meal and then they wander off back to their camp and uh yeah that's where we pick up uh basically we have kind of a vignette of them wandering away as they discuss some of the things that they've learned. Uh, one of the big things is actually the, what, I think 65 gray horses. Mm-hmm. And Eddie's like, well, hey, man, is that normal? Because <laughs> that doesn't seem normal to me. And no. like, Roland's like, it's not. That's super weird. Like, that is not a thing that is normal. And then, and then he's like, but don't they raise horses? And he's like, yeah, they do. But, you know, it's easier to just pretend like something doesn't exist than to, like, really think about it hard. And, I mean, and so, it just says shows how scared they are that they're, like, not even using their brains. They raise horses and they're not even thinking, like, hmm, it's very strange that all of these horses are gray. 
Yeah, and so uh, we kind of get into this moment where Ed, uh, Roland can kind of sense Eddie's um, frustration and irritation. And Roland, like, this is sort of a bonding moment, too, where Roland is like, hey, man, um, let it out. Let it out. And, like, Eddie's like, <laughs> and like you know runs his hands through his hair and like, screaming, like you feel better and he's like yeah yeah, yeah i feel better and he's like well tell me what the heck is going on in there and like right. there's a moment where um introspectively roland's like listen this guy like at first you know i didn't think of him as much but uh over time i've realized that he shares a lot of characteristics with my former companions um and there's like a kind of moment where he's like thinking about it and he's like you know there's not very many men that could really pull off fighting naked <laughs> and Call eddie managed to, to just like rock that and you're just like oh yeah yeah and every time they bring that back up you're like yeah that is pretty it's weird pretty and badass badass <laughs> yeah. or just regular ass because you know you're naked <laughs> or bare ass yeah exactly badass bare ass um you and know? so roland like actually at that moment you kind of get this um this sort of like reliance and understanding that Roland has started to appreciate his quartet in ways that we haven't previously sort of seen before and that he's actually like wants to know what Eddie's intuition is worth in this situation. Mm-hmm. And and this isn't completely new. We've seen hints of this before, but this is the first time where at least I can recall that Stephen King was kind of like, and Roland really relies on this sort of thing from Eddie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought that was a pretty important thing to bring up. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so th- then Eddie's like, well, you know, he's like, look at the sky. What do you see? And he's like, there's 19 up there right there. You know, he's like, everything's mm-hmm. just I, I don't know. It's 19. <laughs> and Roland like looks into the sky and he's like, yeah, yeah, I actually do see that 19. But uh, also I see a turtle, <laughs> and uh, you know, mm-hmm. a chair or something like <laughs> it's like <laughs> kind of like a like a little goof random and and. So then what we kind of come to understand is that Eddie wants to point out that the things don't feel legit and real. Right. And the description he gives is like, you know, we came from the Emerald City. And and it's actually kind of Stephen King almost like pointing out all the tropes that he's gathered up at this moment. In a pretty calm and concise sort of way from a character who's experiencing said tropes. Mm -hmm. And, And so it's it's. Very interesting. And then you also get this reflection of Roland thinking about it as well, because Roland is like, you know, my world ended with the previous place. And now here we see reflections of like this, the clothing choices, the style of life. And like, yeah, sure. Rural life and ranching generally tends to reflect a certain um, cliche, but this is still very poignant. And Mm -hmm. so Eddie's like, you know, we, we basically followed the yellow brick road out of the wizard of Oz, you know, on this trail that takes us right to the place. There's, you know, food basically growing naturally around us to feed us on the way. You know, we get there and we get to a town where they have a problem and the strangers need to solve it. He's like, mm-hmm. there's no doubt that when push comes to shove the like blood and fighting and all that stuff that is going to happen will be real. There'll be real blood. There'll be real pain, real suffering, but it almost still feels like a director's mm-hmm. cut of, of, of life. Interesting. And, and mm-hmm. so this is just like this very poignant, but on topic 
sort of description of all of this and like all of Stephen King's stuff. Now I want to throw it to you cause you got like two or three stars and I've kind of brazed over three sections in yeah. one fast thing, but no worries. do you have research for me on any of this? Because I feel like you do. Uh, you know me, I have some thoughts. <laughs> so you've touched on something I think that is one of the most important te- takeaways from these first two sections, which is that we get this really great scene between Eddie and Roland that uh, aside from the exposition, which is really important, we also get this great check in on sort of the state of their relationship and how it has evolved. And you see that it actually really has grown. There's this new sense of comfort and ease that they have on top of the kind of grudging respect that they previously like there was this sort of tension between how they cared about each other and yet Maybe they were not each other's cup of tea sort of Mm -hmm. thing before, whereas now they're laughing and Eddie has this moment where he's just like, I really like it when Roland laughs. It's rare, but I really like it. And there's just this sort of like almost brotherly kind of vibe between the two of them that has not – we have not really seen exist before that Roland – still acknowledges like, yes, you know, like Bert, he is a ridiculous person, but he also has the same kind of affection for him that he had before, not just grudging respect, but actual affection. And that's kind of great. Um, They seem to kind of understand each other in ways that before they didn't, like there's this moment where Eddie's thinking about where Roland kind of just shrugs something kind of awful off about like if the people die, they die kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or or if we can't help them, we can't help them kind of shrug. Whereas in the past, Eddie's interpretation of that would be that, you know, Roland is super callous and cold and he's like, you know, uh, long, tall and ugly, uh, you know, cold Roland, which is how he always perceived him leading up to this. But now he kind of has this moment of empathy for him where he's like, Oh, he's just as trapped by his adherence to tradition and his his duty as I was to heroin. Like that Roland in some ways is sort of powerless to his sense of duty, which is a very like magnanimous reading of what Roland is saying. And I don't think that Eddie would have been able to get to that place with him in the past. So I think those there's some really great character moments in this first section. There's also another little hint that perhaps that Eddie is on to what's going on with Susanna. He's whittling again, but now Roland notices what he's making is like a, a child's, child's toy. Yes. And something that we'll talk, we'll circle back to at the last section is like, how much does Eddie know? What is he seeing? Con- well, how much does he know consciously versus uncon- or subconsciously? And I think this is sort of our first clue that even though Eddie hasn't said anything, there's, he understands something is up with Susanna, even though maybe he hasn't even told himself that. So that, I think, is an important moment to touch on. So that's Eddie's side in the first section. And then in the second section, we get more of Roland's side, whereas he also is kind of contemplating his connection to to Eddie. And in this case, he's making all of these ties to Bert, which I think is kind of foreshadowing for a section that's coming up in this chapter with the like standout section that we'll be talking about in a little bit <laughs> about Bert. And I think there is, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to get into spoilers, so <clears throat> I'll stop there. And then finally we get a better idea of like the whole 19 thing. Um, what exactly like they they were noticing coincidences and it seemed kind of like they were having a little bit like, 
uh, Eddie in particular was having a little bit of fun with it. They were all the, the sharing Kef about 19 and laughing about it. But now it's kind of one of those things that maybe started off as like a, whoa, this is weird. And it's slowly becoming increasingly more om- ominous. And we now mm-hmm. see that it's actually like really getting in Eddie's head because he can't quite wrap his brain around like what what is it that he's feeling about it. And ultimately it's that it feels like almost like things are happening not by fate but by design and like everything is a little too perfect everything is falling into a formula like if you think back to when they're outside of Lud and he's looking across the bridge and like hoping that in the city that they're going to come to some wise wizard who's going to help them like and then of course that is not at all what happens in the city um it doesn't fall into the formula like he would have been comforted by formula now he knows enough about the world that the fact that suddenly everything is coincidentally lining up with sort of a narrative that is familiar to him, it's it's he understands that there's something wrong with that. There's and I think, you know, as full book readers, we kind of understand what's happening here, but I won't go into that because of spoiler territory. Mm-hmm. That there's some like intentional stuff that's happening, um, in terms of like world manipulation. We'll just say. Um, but yeah, so I think it's also interesting that on the heels of this conversation that we had last time about like, how does this world work that here we are on the cusp of thunderclap and all we've been hearing about is that like, we're in the decline of civilization. There's nothing left. And then we come to these like picturesque rural areas and, and places of functioning industry. Yes. There's a freaking roller coaster town, you know, like how is, how does this make sense? And why is it so weirdly in keeping with like traditional fantasy plot? I don't know. So those are those are I think important things that we're starting to kind of like tap into. Um, it's also the first time that Roland starts to feel seem like maybe he's been blowing off this nineteen thing, but he's starting to get a little sus. I think in this conversation. And then I have one question for you because I don't quite understand. If, know if I understand what it means or not. But there, when he's talking about whether or not things are real. The one thing he's time he doesn't feel that way is around Susanna. Do you think that's just meant to be like, oh, they have this really powerful connection? Or do you think there's more to it than that, like on a metaphysical level? Uh, so this is an interesting question, and I thought a lot about this um, and was actually going to circle back to it if you didn't bring it up. Uh, is basically that so Susanna, because she's multiple people and also like sort of Todash occupying multiple universes it's interesting she's like a personal todash yeah exactly and so that's interesting what it feels like is at least to me is that the reason that Susanna feels the most real to eddie is because Susanna occupies the most worlds of any one of these folks and so that like gives her personal space more gravitas Mm-hmm. At least that's how I I've kind of felt about it, especially since we've like got this oh no not again thing going on where it's like yeah now she can like jump planes of existence to go from one spot to another to go eat frogs in a non-existent swamp you know th- th- this is just uh I don't know um I think the the extra answer is the dichotomy of evil Susanna and good Susanna mm-hmm. So um, that's like a yin and yang thing. And like one of the things Stephen King loves to do is be like, well, here's a bad guy. 
but here's a good guy. Yeah. And like, that's what completes a Stephen King universe. So having that in one person is also like maximum overdrive. Let's see what I did there. <laughs> ah! <laughs> oh my God. I cannot wait to talk about that movie. <laughs> we made you. We made you. Yeah, that, that drunk lady is super fun. But yeah, I, I digress. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that's the right take or if there is a right take on it, but that's how it sort of felt to me. Do you think it's like more of a love thing? I mean, I think it's more of a love thing and maybe it's somehow connected to this idea that like people are real even if the world isn't. But I, I don't totally understand it. I know that it, it kind of makes Roland uncomfortable. So I feel like there's more there there. Maybe it'll kind of come out as we continue but i don't know it just well, it's kind of weird that he didn't like have jake or roland as the you know as the touchstone for that feeling it was just Susanna, and like yeah i know like they're fucking wifey yeah but i mean like is that the only reason because like they're all gunslingers and they share calf so uh, yeah yeah. Mm. yeah i don't know i don't know all right all right let's move forward okay so now we get into some excuse me Super reveals. Uh, we finally like, and this is kind of fun too, because we heard earlier when Roland was with the uh, townsfolk, like, haven't heard about a gunslinger since Jericho Hill. Oh and like, God. And Roland was like, I was there, you know, <laughs> and there, and then like, then he just drops it and like, we move on and you're like, well, you can't just leave the iron hot. Like, I want to know what's going on here. Like, right. Tell yes. me more. You know, uh, careful what you wish for, because it's about to be a bummer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so uh, we we kind of fall into this situation where we wanted to know and then you like slough it off for a bit. But then the payoff is here, sort of. Um, Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so, we get some answers. We get some really hard answers, but we get some answers. So we kind of learn a little bit about what was going on. Like, we we come to find out that they're like, there's a big battle and there's a bunch of troops amassing and there's some smaller battles off and on. And what is basically painted for us is that um, all three of our young gunslingers are battling and Lan had the opportunity to leave but he ends up observing a um, a loss in the troops and comes back to tell Roland and, and Bert what happened. And the surprise of him coming back in the night, they accidentally shoot their friend and kill him, oh. which is super dark. Oh. Um, this is the first introduction to, uh, I believe, of the horn. Because mm-hmm. uh, I don't think it's mentioned anywhere else. And correct me if I'm so. wrong. Yeah, and so we we finally learn about this horn, and Bert's carrying it around. Says Roland, you know, couldn't play it nearly as good as him. But then we get this description of what's going on with Keith Bert. He's got, like, an eye bulging out of his socket. He's been shot who knows how many times. Yeah. And, like, he's in in a bad way. He's dying, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, like, Roland is still okay, but they have you know, soldiers coming towards them, an entire troop of like 2000 men. And, and, uh, you know, even to the end, uh, Bert's like kind of making light of it. Like even after they shot their friend, they're in this dark place. Like everything's going to hell in a handbasket. This is the end of the gunslingers as we know it. And, and, and Bert's like, 
He's like, all right, uh, what are we I doing? I have the rolling? quote if you want. If you want, to yeah, yeah, quote. read it because it's super, super dark, but also super like funny to the end. Yes, Roland. He cries. We've been betrayed. We're outnumbered. Our backs are to the sea. We've got them right where we want them. Shall we charge? <laughs> <laughs> oh my yeah, god, it, Bert! And like uh, Roland's like kind of plays into it. He's like. Even if they try to surrender, we will not accept their surrender. All 2,000 of them must die. Yep. And it's like... uh, All right, Roland says hoarsely, looking around at these few remaining men. We're going into them. We will accept no quarter. Nope, no quarter. Absolutely none, Cuthbert says. We will not accept their surrender if offered. Under no circumstances, laughing harder than ever. Not even should all 2,000 of them lay down their arms. Now, then blow that fucking horn. Yep. Yeah, and as they charge, like, Roland is remembering, like, holding his friend's hand for the last time and all the horrors of this event and thinking, like, this is it. You might as well just let me go now. Yeah. And, like, as it approaches, we're about to find out what this thing says and cut to next scene. Yeah. Oh, my God, my heart. So, like, I, I roughly remembered that... That I knew that there was a tragedy at um, Jericho Hill. Like, I knew mm. that. But I didn't remember how it all went down. And I also, I because there was such a long time between Wizard and Glass, and when I read this, the last, you know, the one time I read this before, mm-hmm. it had been so long that I did not have any real connection to any of Roland's, you know, original quartet. This time through, it was so much more impactful because we just finished reading right? Wizard and Glass, and I'm still so in love with those characters. And so to hear, you know, Jamie DeCurry, who we didn't get to really spend much time, but knowing they just got sniped, and then Elaine, they accidentally killed him, like sweet, sweet Elaine, and then Bert, oh God, laughing to the end and just like full of bullet holes and making jokes and writing to it like on, you know, out essentially on a suicide mission. Mm-hmm. Like you couldn't hope for a more like sort of like glorious Burt like end, but it freaking hurt this time. My heart. I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I understand they're fictional characters. It's I'm going to be okay, but it was still <laughs> really, I don't know. It was really, really sad. And it kind of broke my heart for Roland. But at, and at the same time, I was like, well, the timing of his these memories are a little upsetting considering the whole, you know, like one of the major plots of this book is his gearing up for battle with his new quartet. And I'm like, you know, I I know Ro- King loves a good foreshadow. And I, I, I you know, that's a little ner- <laughs> nervous making. So um, let's uh, let's talk about um, Jamie DeCurry for a second, because like Eels. we haven't really this is this is fairly new character. Like, what do we know about this? person so jamie de curry was one of the members of roland's uh first quartet he joined after the events of um uh wizard of glass sorry i could not think of the name of that dang old book so he basically was recruited by court because he was really good with a bow and arrow um he was the son of a doctor in town the reason you're not super familiar with him is he's only really mentioned in this book and in Little Sisters of Aluria, but he does have a larger role in the car- in the um, comics. Okay, because I, I remember his name kind of being dropped once or twice mm-hmm. previously, yep. but mm-hmm. like only as an aside to something else. And I was trying exactly. to like be like, wait, what is this guy about? 
Yep. No, he's totally a character that is just mentioned and then has had his backstory like really fleshed out in the sort of, you know, outside the books content. Hmm. Okay. Well, th- thanks for that heads up because I, I I do like to actually sort of familiarize myself with the, the back end yeah. characters, but like there's this more is, of like, him in, in Wind in the Keyhole too. Wind through oh, the Keyhole. Okay. Well, he'll come up in that too. So like the stuff he shows up on is stuff that like I have never really tackled before. <laughs> Correct. That's so what you're telling me. Yeah. The first time you ever heard about him was in Little Sisters of Aloria. We talked about him briefly in that. Then he shows up here, and then. Like I said, we'll talk about him again when we get to Win Through the Keyhole. And then if we, when, I know you and I have talked about tackling the comics potentially as like uh, bonus content for Patreon, Mm -hmm. for like Patreon content. So we'll, we'll learn a lot more about him. Like, you know, his his whole background, like his, all his stuff. There's lots of stuff, but we'll get into it when we get there. Bum, bum, bum. Tease, tease, tease. Yeah. So the last thing I want to point out when we're talking about this, like, um, this way back machine is that uh uh the horn like keith burt tells him like hey man this is actually yours and make sure that you pick it up if i fall because it rightfully belongs to you and then like we cut to roland who so devastated by keith burt's fall that he like forgets anything about the horn and like moves on and you're like he leaves it behind on the on jericho hill face palm no reason (laughs) done yeah, this this is a this is a really well done and painful section, mm-hmm. um, and I think I'm glad you mentioned the Horn of Eld because I think that's something important that maybe will come up later. I don't know. We'll just we'll just, just like just table flag that. We'll just for... we'll just underline it. Just you know for future you know no whatever. Reason. MBD. Okay. The other little moment here that I think is worth noting before we move on is that as Roland is being pulled out of the stream. Uh, by the the bells or the common common however you say it um he has this moment where he's reaching out and touching Cuthbert's hand and he's just like no let me finish this and it's interesting that in his sleep in his most vulnerable place in his most unguarded the thing he wants is just like peace and to be done so even though he's driven so hard to the dark tower there's a part of him that would just all he wants is for it to be over which I thought was a kind of a dark but interesting moment. Yeah, yeah. And like even as he's like waking up in this new um Toe Dash world, he's like still feels that that hand on his his own. Oh, Cooperk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let let's talk New York. So uh Roland basically uh Toe dashes to New York and like the hangers, he was about to read something that could be very important and instead sees a sign that says don't walk among other signs with like bright uh, giant letters that are easy to read. And as Roland reads this, he realizes that the folks around him aren't really uh, c- cognizant of the warning on the sign and are just like, I don't give a shit. I'm across the street <laughs> regardless uh, to the point where like one guy just runs out in front of the taxi and flips the taxi off and Roland like it's kind of fun because he's like you know I, I don't know that um that sign means what what I think it means in this world <laughs> right <laughs> that I that made me giggle a little bit I appreciated the joke after like the brutal last section when he's just like I don't think that's uh friendly <laughs> you almost get this uh panicked moment where like roland thinks that he might have actually been the only one to toe dash 
And he thinks mm-hmm. back to his own warning that he told everyone else is that, you know, if you you're the only one in Todash, stay put. And then that way you can get back because um, they're supposed to like, according to Andy, the robots warnings, like you got to think hard about each other or you might not come back altogether. And so as Roland's like panicking, like this is the scenario he did not plan for, which is him being the only one to toe dash to this location. Uh, He turns around and he sees Susan barefoot with legs running towards him. And there's a there's like an internal moment with Roland where it's like I just had the like most horrible vision of everything that's happened to me. What would be the opposite of that that would just, you know, erase that from my my consciousness? And it's like seeing the joy of Susanna, like calling at him and then running towards him with legs. Yeah. So she runs towards him and Roland starts talking to her. She's like pretty marveled by the legs. He's like, you know, we need to get you some shoes, girl. <laughs> There's cut glass all over the place. And, yeah, and like, I do not want to walk around any city barefoot, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Uh, Staff in fiction city. Yes. All you all you need is all the animal feces that are on the ground that it can Bold give you. Bold of you to assume it's animal. Yeah. <laughs> Someone has not been to San Francisco recently. Oh, no, no. I've had, to, I've had to tell Danny a few times, like, that is not dog stuff. That is people stuff. And we need to, like, go a ways around because that's how you get E. coli. Uh, anyway so uh she's not wearing shoes she's really excited about her legs roland's talking to her and he slips and says mia and she doesn't even blink not even like upset or anything about it and what we learn in this moment is that she was about to mia off and go feed on stuff when she got toe dashed Mm -hmm. and because that part of Susanna is a different conceptual part of Susanna than the the regular Susanna. She came with legs. Yeah. And so basically what we come to understand is that Todash sort of takes into account what you actually believe in your heart of hearts. And that's what I was so I was curious that you were gonna say that when she's both women, the physical manifestation uh, she receives of the physical physical manifestation of legs. It's not just mental. So I guess oh, that answers my question. I was like, how does this? How does Todash work? Like it basically, it will it turn it materializes what's in your what you believe to be true. Yeah, and and Interesting. so what we kind of got also is that like this Todash state is almost real. Like, almost, but not quite, because, like, people are still sort of, like, wandering around them, but not noticing them mm-hmm. as they move around. And so it's it's like the closer they get to Black 13, the more powerful it is in transporting them there. And, and so that that kind of shows in, in, in Susanna having legs and, and Roland even slips and he's, he calls her Mia by accident and she doesn't even bat an eye. Like it doesn't phase her at all. She just looks to Roland for some like um, input on what they should do next. And Mm -hmm. as she's looking to Roland for this sort of like leadership role, uh, we, uh, we finally see that like Eddie 
um, Jake and Oi also made it, mm-hmm. which is like a good positive. That that means that the entire crew is here. And when they show up, it's like, oh, okay, well, what do you want to do first? And before that, he was hoping that Susanna could take him to where they needed to go. And she lets him know that, like, basically, this isn't her New York. She doesn't recognize this New York because it is far different from the days of her stealing from Macy's and shoplifting. Mm -hmm. But that she could find her way around because the city is basically set up the same and it hasn't changed avenues one way and streets the other. So that's like kind of a cool thing. We also kind of looking around the city start to wonder if this is any of their New Yorks or a completely different New York. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, okay, let's talk about Mia. We talked a little bit about my curiosity about how Todash works. But what's interesting here is, like you said, he calls her Mia but she doesn't even blink. She doesn't even bat an eye. She doesn't even seem to notice. And he did it kind of half on mistake. Uh, like maybe he all, he caught himself and decided just to see how she would react. I'm trying to figure out what that means. Like that she's sort of in this sort of half place. And what's interesting is there is something different about her and it's, and I was thinking about the way that she's acting. Yes. She's excited about the legs, but she seems incredibly un-Susanna in this moment. I don't know if you picked that up, but when she's like dancing around and 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 hugging Roland, there's something kind of like girlish and uncool about her that I would never. You sure, this really isn't just the joy Susanna of like as. having legs again. I mean, that's part of it, but the way that she's expressing the joy feels to me very un-Susanna. I didn't no, pick up on that, so that's me. like kind of interesting, and I uh, that's why I'm leaning into it. Is because like I thought it was just like I can do a little jig because I got legs again. Woo! It's it's subtle, but like it's just I I feel like I kind of know who Susanna is, and I can't really see that. I don't know because there's this moment where Eddie looks at her. She, there's something off about her, even though he's not maybe fully consciously. T- like admitting it to himself yeah she's like an inch taller than him now and like he's a little embarrassed by it got short man (laughs) but i think it's more than that i think that's the point is that there's something subtle happening and i think the way that king is writing her in the same is in the same way subtly different than the susanna that we know like there's some there but there's also something else there yeah i didn't pick that up so i will keep an eye out for that in the future um but i mean we basically know that it is not Susanna. So re- regardless of the writing style, like we're told like immediately. Yep. Yep. That is definitely Mia. Yeah. Um, maybe it's like, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'm just putting too much on it. But. I don't, I don't know. Like I didn't get enough from her in this little section to feel like I had that judgment. I just kind of chalked it up to the joy. I, just, I mean, think about her like running and throwing her arms around Roland. That just feels so un Susanna to me. The other thing I think is really interesting in this section is she gets has this moment where she gets scared because she senses sort of like this lurking darkness. Mm-hmm. And it's something that was touched on. And we were trying to kind of trying to understand what it was the first time that Eddie and Jake went. And we get an explanation. And that is that they're traveling in Black 13. Yeah. Yeah. Which I thought was really cool. And like that feeling will get worse as they get closer to Black 13. The uh, the whole uh, Susanna Mia thing, like, and uh, Todash in general, I basically internalized it as being her um, 
personification of her self view. It's sort of like, I guess I went right to the matrix with this mm-hmm. where like, you know, as soon as Neo goes into the matrix, like he looks like regular Neo mm-hmm. and they're like, well, how did this happen? It's like, well, this is what you believe you look like. <laughs> and so you do. And that's mm-hmm. sort of what I thought, like this toe dash black 13 did to her. Um, but I, I don't know. Maybe that's incorrect. It just, if, if that's what it sort of felt like to me. Yeah, I think that that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that that seems reasonable to me. Uh, and when when Eddie uh, and Jake finally pull up to these guys, like there's a couple of moments with Eddie where he, he's like. You can kind of tell he like feels like there might be something, but like doesn't mm-hmm. really. You know, address it, he just kind of is like. Great, you look great, <laughs> you, you know, yeah. and then like we get another song reference um where it's like uh uh you know and you know how to move them or something like that it's like the is that zz tops or something like well, that I d- that's actually a great call i forgot to write that in my notes but yeah so he he references a zz top song which if you recall was also song, yep mm-hmm, go ahead it, it was the song that they played you know at the pubes yes it was the <laughs> sacrifice song yep and it's blood. like and that's that's kind of interesting. Like ZZ Top makes multiple appearances. Like I, I don't uh-huh. know, is there a connection uh, Stephen King worldwide that has to do with like ZZ Top in general, or is it just like know. he's like was in the mood for some ZZ Top at the time? I mean, I think Stephen King fancies himself Ooh. like a rock guy because <laughs> then we get into there's like multiple Rolling Stones references here too, where we get away from or last time. Jake was running down the street. He was thinking about the, or he heard the Paint It Black song. And now he's hearing, was it 19? Yeah, I'm not familiar with the 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 19 song that uh, that they reference for the Rolling Stones. And I didn't know what 19th it was. 19th Nervous Breakdown. Wow, uh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so basically, like, they start, they, they start heading towards the store. Um Eddie and Jake like kind of talk to Roland. Roland's like, "Well, I would, I would really like to see the store, and then like, I want to see the rose." And so as they wander over to the the store, they look in and like realize that uh, um, it's kind of sad. Like, yeah, it looks not abandoned, but not particularly well maintained. It's closed at the time, so the sign's not out, and internally, like, it doesn't feel the same as it did earlier like it's slowly decomposing which is is putting it in the right state to be taken over by these uh gangsters um we also kind of get this uh one moment where uh we double back to that statement he made about how long he's been around and it's since before bob dylan could play an e on his owner i think is the statement Uh uh-huh and so they're like kind of like, well, what's a hoder? And then it's like, well, that's actually a uh, harmonica. And like, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Bob Dylan used to hang around like what Greenwich Village or something like that. And yes. <laughs> and so that's like, oh, whoa, like, well, this guy's been around for a long, long time. Yeah. And, and so that's that's a really like interesting callback to the earlier theories that the gang kind of proposed for how long this family has owned property in this area and so on. Um, mm-hmm. And it also kind of like puts a pin in the, the idea that we discussed earlier about how like it, he is uh, 
three generational person where it's like you started poor, you worked your way up to rich, and now you're working your way back down to poor again. Shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Yep, yep, exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so even though this is a short bit, it's like also super poignant. And then, you know, we get kind of uh, the mention again of Balazar. And, like, yeah. this kind of calls all the way back to the first bit where Eddie's like, this is, seems almost too convenient, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's this whole moment where they're like, I bet Aaron Deepno was in the same room. I bet Jack Annalini was working in the bar because uh, all these strange coincidences are happening. And this is kind of the first moment that you get that it's not just Eddie that's feeling this way, but also Susanna and Jake are sharing in this feeling of, like, there are just too many coincidences. Like this is just all lining up too cleanly. Now, the other thing I wanted to point out, and this is, I've kind of skipped around a little bit, Rachel. So I'll throw it back to you to like pick up the pieces of my, my, uh, my <laughs> scatterbrain. But okay. um, there, there's a, a, one of the things you, you mentioned, and I want to come back to is that Susanna, and uh, now we know is Mia is like feeling dark and uncomfortable. And, well, I don't disagree that part of that is probably the Black 13 that is helping him to go toe dash. Um, I also think as Mia, the approach to, uh, you know, because they're, they're trying to get to the field where they where the rose was like that yeah. approach is maybe weighing heavy on the less um, scrupulous I mean, or maybe possibly mildly evil mom. <laughs> Mia interesting uh, that maybe sits a little bit less heavy on the shoulders of Roland and the rest of the crew because like even when she mentions that Roland is like no it's just night out he like isn't feeling it nearly as hard picks up on it more yep Mm -hmm. exactly and like that almost to me felt a little vampire-y vampire-y well not like vampire-y in the like she's a vampire vampire-y in the like um oh yeah I don't want to walk into that church Oh, interesting. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, like it feels a little more like hollowed ground. That is very interesting. I had not occurred to me. I, Yeah, the other thing is they find that newspaper, and I think that's kind of the most important takeaway. Oh, yeah, for Ronald Reagan? <laughs> Ronald Reagan. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but essentially what they discover is that time moves faster here than it does where they are. And what that creates is that sense of a ticking clock. Like they mm-hmm. think they have a certain amount of time to resolve the situation in the Kala, but turns out actually they ha- do not have that much time. They have less time than they thought, which is just a great way of, of King essentially turning up the tension screws a little bit because he's got these eight, he's got a plot and B plot going. So to remind you that as time sort of unfolds in our a plot, that the B, B plot is speeding along whether they're getting there or not so they need to hurry up and resolve this situation with the wolves get the black 13 and get over and start their little you know multi-dimensional heist um and that time is not necessarily on their side it's just good tension building i think this one's kind of funny because like roland's like is it 2x and like and he's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's more like one and a half X. And it's like, that's very precisely. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he hopes. How he you know hopes. This? And then like, <laughs> it's like, well, I'm not really actually even sure, you know, like what? And then, and that, the, the joke I was alluding to is like, um, uh, apparently like, uh, uh, Susanna thinks that like Eddie and Jake have been like 
co uh, co opting to or like you know kind of planning conspirator. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, to like yeah, yeah, to yeah, tell yeah. her that like Reagan was president. She's like, I could see these other people like. <laughs> they could be president, wah, 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 but like not this guy, but that guy. <laughs> and like and yeah. when that was going on, I'm like, oh man, if only that were true. <laughs> All right. So overall, what did you think of this chapter? So this chapter is is sort of just regular stuff, but with like a huge bomb drop in the middle that is like stuff that we've wanted to know about for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and so overall that like, basically brings it up from like a six to a nine mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's like well you know if you didn't put that dress on you'd be a six but you put that dress on and now you're a nine or you put that suit on and now you're nine and like that that one little section is the suit and you're just like okay you look good whatever you did there that's nice i like that you know, do that again next time and I, that's what i feel about this chapter rachel what do you think uh, yeah, I, I thought this chapter was really interesting. I'm I have a feeling the second half is like where the act like the plot in stuff is gonna be stronger. But I do think this had some really great character moments, like the stuff at the beginning with Eddie and Roland I really enjoyed. And uh I do like the weird metaphysical stuff about what's happening with Susanna and how she's like mid transformed. I'm really curious what that's gonna look like as they continue on and they get to the lot. Like you were saying, maybe Maybe she won't react so well to getting near the rose. I don't know. I don't remember. So uh, <laughs> that, that's that got my little wheels a spinning in the hamster wheel up here. Uh, the other thing I really loved was obviously the loved is maybe not the right word. I appreciated and was heartbroken by the Jericho Hill stuff. Uh, it just, oh God. You killed your own friend, man. We talked about Elaine, this. Elaine, do RIP. <laughs> it's so brutal. But yeah, overall, I think this was a an interesting chapter or interesting start to a chapter that I, I'm excited to see where it goes next. All right, cool. So for those of you who are playing along, next time we are going to be finishing this chapter. We're, the reading is going to cover chapter six, Toadash, sections nine. I'm sorry, is it chapter six or chapter seven? Sorry, chapter seven, Toadash. Uh, sections 9 through 16. So we will wrap that up. I don't have any Stephen King universe connections for this one. There also really isn't any news. I mean, and ZZ because Top. We could just, we could all just vibe out to some ZZ Top if you want. <laughs> um, and because I blew it and did not post a question, this is going to be an, a pretty short episode this time. But I do have a question for the next episode. And I will post this on the Facebook as well. Although you can are happy if you are not on the Facebook to send us an email with your answer. The question is, because we're all still reeling from this Jericho Hill section in the, in this part of the chapter and, and you know, we're, fe- we're in our feelings. We want to know from you, what was a death from the book, from a book that hit you the hardest outside of the dark tower? So we can avoid spoilers for the dark tower in case anybody dies or maybe everybody lives and it's a happy ending. I don't know. Um, no spoilers here. So what is a, a death from a book that when you look back on it, hit you the hardest and why? Dun, dun, dun. All right. So because like I said, I blew it. That's kind of it for us. So if you want to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can answer this question. You can ask us a question. Actually, wait a minute. That's not true. I do have one email. I just remembered I have an email. You have an email? Okay. I do. We, we got an email. We do get emails sometimes. Interesting. Okay, hold on. Let me pull this up. I almost blew this. Okay, so this email comes from Dave, and he says, Hello, I am the one who volunteered my services for weapon information. 
King uses the term Docker's clutch to refer to a shoulder holster. Holds a, it holds a handgun under the arm on the left side for a right-handed shooter or the right side for a lefty. In the episode you were describing a chest rig or a chest holster, these hold the gun across the chest and are usually used for hunting purposes. Butt handle of the gun faces left for left right, and right for right-handed shooters. However, this is only my interpretation as King is not very gun knowledgeable and probably <laughs> makes glaring mistakes or takes liberties, if you prefer, with guns in particular. Thanks for remembering me and sorry for my delayed response. I had a large backlog of pods to get through. Hope this helps. Thanks for all the insights and entertainment. Um, he That's also- awesome. Yes. Yes. That actually clears up a lot for me in terms of where I, I mean, I would imagine like, a shoulder holster feels like so much easier to say than Docker's clutch. Why? Why confuse me? So he did have one more note in here that's a little off topic, but I think is really interesting. He said, it also might be of interest to let you know that I make music based on books and films. My music goes by the name of Night Surf. Um, let's see here. And the first record is available on all streaming platforms. This record is based on and around author Thomas Harris's Hannibal novels. As Ooh. well as the films based on them. Musically, I call it desktop metal. Think Nine Inch Nail, <laughs> Typo Negative, Deftones mixed in with narr- narration and movie samples. Which sounds like super badass. Desktop metal. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm fine with that. That sounds interesting. Well, you're also a musician. What do you think about that? Um, So, I span the gamut of doing, like, happy jingles to, like, death metal to, like, punk stuff. Uh, so... Anything you do, like unless it's um new country, I'm I'm golden with you. So, De- desktop metal, sign me up. I'll I'll take a a gander at whatever that is. Awesome. So yeah, everybody should definitely check out Night Surf. Stream those things. Get into it. And thank you so much again, Dave. That was super super helpful. I appreciate the clarification. And I'm guessing we'll have more gun questions for you in the future. So please stay with us. We we're gonna need you. <laughs> um so like dave if you want to get in touch with us there are lots of ways that you can do that you can email the best one is probably just to go ahead and email us email us at castofcaw at zombiegirls.com and that's g-r-r-l-z.com or you can come chat with us over on the uh cast of caw facebook group we love talking to people over there or you can follow us on instagram and twitter at zg podcasts plural podcast plural on instagram and twitter and uh if you're loving the show do us a huge favor and leave us a review on apple Podcasts or wherever it is that your pods and if you're listening on spotify they now allow for star rating so please give us a good old five star rating on there if you are so inclined and if you're looking for something spooky to watch tonight you should check out our video on demand and streaming calendar on the zombie girls website where we keep track of all the spooky doings that are on the stream millions of streaming services and video on demand and if you're looking for a new shirt or sweatshirt or a coffee mug or a magnet or whatever strikes your fancy check out our merch at zombiegirls.com forward slash merch and finally if you love us and you want to support us and you want to get some of that sweet sweet bonus content that is coming your way we're going to be doing live shows we're going to be doing bonus episodes we're going to be doing all kinds of stuff uh yeah we've got our women in horror month uh big live extravaganza coming in march dj are you excited for that uh sure whatever you tell me to do (laughs) 
<laughs> Are you boning up on all of your like lady and whore knowledge? Uh, so, um, despite being on one of the longest running horror theme podcasts on the internet, I spend very little time boning up on any movie related things <laughs> at all. So I will take whatever assignments that are doled out to me and I will complete them. Don't worry. There are some portions of the, of the game that are going to be more creative, you know? So I think that's where you're really going to shine. <laughs> so yeah, you're going to want to be a part of that. We have a lot of fun stuff planned. You can do that by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash zombie girls. If you're a patron and you haven't joined the discord yet, you should, should we do all kinds of fun stuff on there for instance right after this we're doing a group watch of the new texas chainsaw massacre movie um which i think you know based on the reviews we might need community and solidarity to get through we'll see um but yeah so that's all the patreon plugs and obviously every episode on the network is extended for patrons for instance we're going to be again talking about some very strange headlines uh on the extended today and I think that's about it. So, DJ, if this is not enough and they're already patrons and they're like a, all that sweet, sweet bonus content and they need more, more DJ, where can they find you on the Internet? It's swing over to YouTube and, and go to classic videos. Uh, you can watch uh, One Lone Dork or uh, DSLR Film Noob. Um, those have a bunch of classic DJs running around doing stupid stuff. Uh, you can also, uh, swing over to Etsy and buy some garbage from me, uh, in the Muffins Bank store. And, um, you can find me here on the Zombie Girl Podcast Network. Rachel, where can people find you? <laughs> oh, you can find me, obviously, all over the Zombie Girls Podcast Network. You can find me on the Zombie Girls, Zombie Girls Prime, where we review horror films from a feminist perspective. In fact, the episode, the latest episode dropped today. And, well, I mean, in terms of when we're recording, not when this is going to be out. So it would have been a few days um, we reviewed Death Becomes Her and Witches of Eastwick. Oh, I love Death Becomes Her. It's such a fun one. And it was like a first watch for a couple of people. Oh, so that geez. Was, that one's I like know. a rare gem that like for some reason escaped a lot of people's popular radar. But mm -hmm. it's so, so good. And like also plot wise, excellent. Actor wise, excellent. Like mm -hmm. just check so many boxes with special effects and like even back then did a really amazing job yeah yep yep i i loved it i had a ton of fun with it um and we had a really good conversation about it so hopefully people will give it a give that a, a listen you can find me on the stream queens where we review horror films from a feminine no you can find me on the stream queens where we review horror films that you can find on the internet right now the episode out is on the first hellraiser film which is we're doing a full rewatch of that full franchise over the course box. of this year exactly <laughs> you can find me on more deadly we'll review films exclusively directed by female identified directors and you can find me on the untitled nick cage show <clears throat> where we are going through the entire back catalog of one national treasure nick cage's career we next episode coming out is pig which we did a little special like oscar month episode about pig even though it didn't get nominated which is some bullshit um and am i forgetting anything i don't think so <laughs> is that everything i think so yes and then finally like i said i was on trick-or-treat radio uh last night and so you should definitely go check them out and that i think 
is it. Yeah, that should be it. That's enough. You don't need any more of me in your life. I don't even want that much of me in my, in my life. So I imagine that's got to be enough. Um, I guess to, unless people are sticking around for the extended episode, that is it for us. So DJ, take us out. Now, I, I think folks at home, um, since we we didn't really talk a lot about this during the cast, uh, uh, think for a moment the last time you were sick and imagine what kind of person you are. Are you a heaver? Or are you a projectile vomiter? If you're the second one, congratulations. We're friends. <laughs> if you're the first one, I'm so sorry. That must be the worst experience ever. Good night. Can we be friends if I'm a hybrid? Yeah, we can still be friends. Okay, okay. All the way across the puking board. I'm not actually excluding any of you out there from from your vomiting pleasures. Uh, you just do you. Pleasures! <laughs> Good night. Bye, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and to my co-host, DJ, for making me laugh and for indulging all of my tinfoil hat conspiracies. Production on this episode was done by yours truly. Our theme song for the show was created by DJ. All right, let's get into this bad boy. What do you say? All right, what do we... What, this is the uh, behind the scenes? Yeah, are, we, right. are we talking about puke? Or are we... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can if you want. I'm gonna save probably save that for the bonus episode. Okay, so let me. Sorry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the extended episode where I try. I guess I I find find these stories to be interesting, and then DJ's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I know about that." <laughs> wait, wait, are we uh, okay? We're doing that again. All right, well, let's let's Is roll. That okay. Then. Yeah. I don't okay. Okay. So, all right. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Ticks are now being modified using CRISPR to end Lyme disease. Yeah, uh, same thing they're actually doing with mosquitoes in South America. Is that right? Yeah. Um, the ticks, it's different. Like, obviously, mosquitoes don't carry Lyme disease. Uh, but with mosquitoes, they use CRISPR to create a genetically sterile mosquito three generations in. So mm. they can release a bunch of mosquitoes, and the mosquitoes will kill off the other ones. Um, the Lyme disease, though, is extra interesting because um, – are you familiar with alpha-gal? No. <laughs> okay, so the tick bites, specifically I think deer ticks. I might be wrong. Mm -hmm. Someone fact check this. Uh, they – when they bite you and you get the disease that the tick is carrying, it can make some people allergic to red meat. Oh, interesting. And so uh, – that actually circles all the way back around to the transplant of a pig's heart into a person. Okay. So if you remember recently, also in the news is they transplanted a pig's heart into a person. Well, the reason that pig's hearts wouldn't work in a human normally or other organs is because uh, humans reject uh, a high alpha-gal Con concentrates and so the information that are gathered from the people that got this immune deficiency to be uh, allergic to meat they were able to use that information to genetically engineer pigs to not produce that particular thing so that you would not be um rejecting the heart that you got from an animal right and it all leads back to ticks wild yeah wild. yeah <laughs> but but tell me the story because uh i Okay, let me cool. give you the background for people who don't know, and then you can weigh in on it. All right, so scientists from the University of Maryland and Penn State University think that they have struck gold in their effort to eradicate our friend Matt's uh, greatest nemesis, 
uh, Lyme disease because he's the most afraid of ticks of anyone I've ever met in my life. Um, okay. They were able to get around the natural measures that allowed ticks eggs to be nearly impervious to the process needed to modify the genes before they, before they hatched. They used CRISPR gene editing technology, which I just learned what that was. I thought the CRISPR was an actual literal machine. Like you put them like, in like a cooler and cool them off. I didn't know. I thought it was like it, I thought it was like a nanobot like or something. And it was like going like and like like turn on its little laser cutter and be like, ee, ee. you know. I didn't know that it was like machine meant. I didn't understand the definition of machine did not include actual like literal Nanobots. machines. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but that's a side, that's a whole side thing. <laughs> um, their next step will be to determine which genes are associated with a tick's ability to transmit pathogens and similar efforts, like you said, are being used to end malaria by mosquitoes. There's no time frame currently for when we'll see these billions of modified ticks released into, to upgrade the gene pool. And, uh, you know. What could possibly go wrong with that? Yeah, and actually that's the key underlying statement here for both the mosquitoes and the tick applications. So for the mosquitoes, the one thing is eliminating a bunch of mosquitoes or a certain type mm -hmm. of mosquito and what impact that might have on their their feeding or whatever feeds on them. And the mm -hmm. ticks are the same way. Like if you genetically re-engineer a tick to to not carry something – does that have an effect on the thing that eats the tick? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess we don't know, right? Yeah. Like and like the problem with uh, biological experiments like this is like you can't take it back once you kick it out the door. <laughs> right. Because nature finds a way. Yeah. Now we're getting into like I am legend territory. Yep. Yep. Like uh... the, the tick zombie apocalypse. <laughs> 